Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Discomfort Zone podcast. My name is Olev and the views and opinions expressed in this show are my own and do not represent MSP Waves or anyone else for that matter. Okay, welcome to another episode. Thank you so much for joining. Wow, I feel like I'm stepping into a uh, real feisty chat room, so I'm going to let that carry on as you were. Uh, but for those listening live or for those listening later, um, this is the second episode of the uh, five methodologies that I've been talking about. We started last week with a few principles from permaculture. And so this week we're going to carry on with the second methodology, which for those who remember was actually uh, food forests. Now, before I jump into that, I want to uh, address something that happened last week at the end of the show, right, right at the end. Uh, there was a question from someone in chat. Um, I can't remember the exact name. And the question dealt with uh, quite a lot, and I said I would answer it next week. Having seen the question, I'm going to just uh, very quickly say that I will address it in a later episode. It's not quite relevant for what we're talking about now. But I promise not to forget. I will refer to it uh, later. The question, for those who want to know, was... Uh, they'd like to hear more about micro and macro and how do I think size affects our perception, rich, poor, community, individual, etc. So this pertains a lot to uh, the social interactions of the eco-village and all of that side of it. So I'm not going to refer to that right now. I will continue with that uh, in a future episode. So uh, let's dive right into it. This week's episode is about food forests. And in the first episode of the podcast, the first ever episode, I mentioned food forests very generally and spoke a little bit about this concept of uh, biomimicry. And so for those who have heard it, I won't repeat myself too much, but this is a very important concept. So what is a food forest? What does it actually mean? Well, there's a few ways of addressing it and a few reasons why I believe and we believe that a food forest is, is the only viable solution. Um, one of the most important things is maintenance. And so most gardens and especially uh, seasonal vegetables and all of this kind of uh, farming that we know it has a great deal of maintenance, a great deal of work that has to be put in pretty much all year round in order to have the, the crop come out and be able to, to use it properly. And this leads to this perception that I met when I was first talking about this idea with people I know and telling them about growing all of our own food and being able to grow it, you know, on our own as it were. People had a very hard time accepting that it might be possible and, and really argued against it and said, if you want to do that, if you're actually going to do that, that means you have to work, you know, 10 hours every day and you can never have a vacation, etc., etc. And so I was really met with this disbelief that it could be done. And if it could be done, it was really a lot of hard work. And this is where the concept of the food forest is really a, an interesting innovation because what it actually is trying to do is create a system that is 
in the same way that a forest is, zero maintenance, which means a forest out in nature as we know provides all of the elements that it needs in order to flourish. Um, it provides its own water, it provides the nutrients that the ground then recycles and lets new organisms eat it or use it in other ways. Uh, you know, it, it purifies the water, it uh, purifies the air, um, you know, the trees help to oxygenate it and the different organisms help to reciprocate with uh, carbon dioxide and this whole cycle is going through within the forest as one contained uh, unit. And so it's this concept that allows us, uh, if we really try and use it to our benefit, to grow our food and to grow our crop crops, but uh, to do it with minimal effort on our part. Obviously, there's a great deal of effort in setting it up and in the initial uh, establishing phase. But from then on, every year that goes by, there should be less and less maintenance that needs to uh, go into it. Um, I can see there's a question in chat. Yes, this is a live uh, show. Um, you can feel free to pose questions in the chat. I don't always see everything, especially on a day like today where there seems to be a lot uh, going on. So I'll, I'll allow you to carry on. But I do go through the chat occasionally to see if I've missed anything, uh, uh, any questions. So this concept of a food forest is really a way for us to grow a large amount of food in, with minimal amount of maintenance upkeep work. And the way to do it, or one of the very important ways, is that you grow very few uh, uh, seasonal vegetables and seasonal uh, crops, and you have a very large focus on perennials. That means uh, fruits and different uh, plants that will keep on giving food throughout uh, the year and not just for one uh, season. Um, uh, sorry, not for other year, but for, for many years and don't just die after one season. So we have this concept of a food forest and one part of it, as I've said, is the low maintenance, but there's another side that makes the food forest a very interesting concept to study. And that's this idea of biomimicry. So while we look at the forest and we're studying the way that it behaves and the way that it grows, we're actually trying to learn how to emulate that process. And so obviously most forests that are natural forests aren't necessarily uh, growing a lot of food crops that people can eat. They grow a lot of crops that animals and insects can eat, but for our purposes, they're not actually a food forest. So we want to take the way that a forest behaves. We want to emulate the growing techniques that a forest uses and implement that with our own choice of food crops, with the crops and plants that we can actually use, whether it's for food or obviously for fibers, for working materials, etc. But designing a forest that can have the same stability, rigidity, and uh, regenerative uh, um, parts of it the same way that a forest does, but at the same time it will be tailored to our needs and to what we uh, want to grow. So this idea of biomimicry is a very large concept with food forests being one of its uh, examples. And what it does is, it's exactly as it says, we are attempting to imitate, to mimic what nature does and the systems that nature has shown us to be successful 
and to attempt to emulate those in the systems that we want to create that are meant to benefit us and to suit our needs. And so whenever we're talking about a forest system, and it seems that in general the uh, concept of biomimicry, uh, we come across a very special and interesting organism, and that is the, the fungi um, kingdom, really, I should say, not organism. And the fungal kingdom is a unique part of nature. And specifically when it comes to forests, in recent years there have been a lot of studies that have shown that all forests have a very large uh, mycelial network underground. The mycelial network is really the body of the mushroom. And so I'll just very quickly uh, uh, explain for those who aren't too familiar with the concepts, the actual part that we eat or that we see, the mushroom, is the fruiting body that grows out of this white, fuzzy um, mycelial network, the body of the mushroom that grows underground uh, usually or on wood when it's actually colonizing it. And so this mycelial network, not all uh, fungi actually produce mushrooms. A lot of species of fungi won't produce mushrooms unless they feel in some way threatened, that their genetics could be ending and they need, feel the need to procreate. But other than that, um, most, a lot of mycelial networks that are growing underground are going to grow undisturbed and aren't going to make themselves visible above ground. But nonetheless, all forests on Earth have a huge um, mycelial network underground. And that mycelial network uh, is actually responsible for a, a lot of things. Um, it's basically, it's a sort of highway. And it's a highway for transporting all sorts of things, whether it's nutrients and even water. There have been studies to show that the mycelial networks can carry nutrients from one place in the forest where it's more densely found to a different place for it to be available to the organisms there. And on top of this actual physical transportation that can happen, there seems to be another form of network that's going on, and that's a communications network. And so this mycelial uh, sort of layer of the forest that exists underground is actually allowing the organisms of the forest to communicate, you know, obviously, in a certain way. Um, the studies that have been shown were addressing this as a chemical communication, and certainly that would be the way that our instruments would report it and would, you know, uh, translate it to us. But there's still the question of what this chemical information means to the organisms. What does it actually translate? But whatever that may be, an interesting question, and for me at least, um, nonetheless, we have to remember that underneath this forested areas, there is always this communications network that's working underground to transport nutrients and information from one part of the forest to the other. And so this really forces us to look at the forest a little differently, although it can be a very large area, certainly for people to you know, get lost in. But the forest seems to be acting in, to a certain degree as a single unit, as a, you know, a super organism, organism, as it were. 
that seems to be connecting all of these different parts together to be working together, supplying and taking what's necessary to continue this flow of nutrients and chemicals and everything that's necessary for them to survive. And I think that this concept of unifying it and seeing this food forest as a single organism is going to really help when we come to design a system that's supposed to be holistic. So that when we're putting our different plants in, whether it's a garden or a forest garden, as it were, um, we're not just choosing plants that we like and where we want to put them and doing whatever we want, but we're actually trying to think of the system as a single unit functioning together with many different parts that do many different things, but that each of those parts is playing its role perfectly in this much larger super organism that's going on. And so if we've spoken a little bit about mushrooms and their very important role, for those who've listened to this podcast, uh, you'll obviously have noticed by now that I'm a very big uh, proponent of fungi. I think they're an incredible organism and the more I learn about them, the, the, the crazier it is. So uh, I, I may go on <laughs> a little bit, but I do think that it's relevant for this point, which is... Uh, the fungal kingdom can do one other thing that's very important both for forests and for our work with food forests in general and that's a concept that's known as uh, mycoremediation. I believe I've mentioned it here before but for those who haven't heard mycoremediation is a small, uh, so, well not so small, but a branch of the larger subject of bioremediation and that is trying to use nature and natural solutions in order to help help remediate in order to help uh, fix problems that were caused generally speaking uh, to the environment so whether these are oil spills or different you know metal heavy metals or chemicals or any kind of man-caused disaster that is actually afflicting the organisms People have developed this sort of way of thinking, which is bioremediation, which is finding the solutions that nature has developed to deal with these same crises. So uh, in one of the last episodes, I mentioned radiotrophic uh, mushrooms that can actually sort of ingest and uh, transform radiation into uh, nutrients. And so that's an example of this microremediation. So when we're talking about uh, the forest system in general and the way that we're approaching this food forest, it's always good to remember that there's, there's a great deal that can be done um, with microremediation in helping the forest to flourish. And I'll just give one or two very, very small examples because they've just very recently come up and I think it's very interesting. So. The first one comes from Paul Stamets, and among many of the inventions that he had, one of the things was a sack filled with this uh, straw that he would uh, colonize with mushrooms. It was usually oyster mushrooms because they're very good at uh, uh, sort of siphoning through and taking out, pulling out all of the uh, toxins and poisons and letting uh, cleaner water run through. And so he would colonize these sacks with the mushrooms. And once they were filled, he would get, you know, 10, 15, 20 of these sacks. 
and he'd go to a stream or a small river that was running through the forest that was potentially had chemicals in it that was used by people upstream for something that wasn't good, you know, for whatever the reason that was somehow contaminated. And he would put these sacks as a sort of dam and then the water would flow through these sacks. And you'd want to have quite a few of them placed. Uh, you can see pictures if you look online. I haven't got anything here. But um, he would lay these sacks next to each other and the water would flow through them. And that way they would actually be cleansed. They would be filtered through these uh, mycelium, mycelial sacks and uh, come out cleaner water on the other end. And so that's just one of the examples. Paul Stamets has a wonderful um, TED talk. If you haven't seen any of his longer things or whatever, longer lectures, it's, I think, you know, 18 minutes and it goes over six ways that mushrooms can solve the world. Each of those are really worthwhile. So I won't go too far into it more because I could really do a whole episode just on uh, mushrooms. Um, oh, wow, okay. I've missed quite a few things on chat. So thank you so much, everyone who's participating, first of all. Um, I think I can't see any questions. I can just see a lot of microfiles uh, joining me as well. So this is wonderful to see. If you want to have a look later through chat and see some of the things I'm going to be downloading. Food Forest Workshop Handout. Amazing. Okay, so let's continue to the next subject, which leads on from this uh, fungal network that plays such an important role in the forest. And this is a further research that was done that's, I think, still being developed, and we really don't know much about it. But it was first described or theorized quite a few years ago. I think I first heard about, I mean, the first uh, mention of it was around the 1950s or 60s, but I believe there were one or two uh, botanists who were sort of aware of this before. And that is that in the same way that um, mycelial networks communicate, um, the actually plants as well and the trees of the forest um, communicate with each other. And there's one very simple way that this can happen, especially I think in swamp areas where one tree can actually grow shoots and uh, grow more and more trees and eventually you have this massive forest or seems to be forest that's actually one organism, one tree that's grown. Um, but that's one way of it being more clear how it's a single organism. But even trees that are separate trees that are growing in the area and their root systems go into ground close to each other, studies have shown that they can also exchange uh, information and as scientists and researchers are trying to interpret this information more and more, they've actually found that you can see sort of warnings that the trees can uh, communicate or telling about things that are happening in different places uh, in the forest and communicating that sort of information. Now, it sounds pretty sci-fi, but uh, it's, it's definitely been shown that these plants have some form of communication going uh, between them. And so I'll just mention something very quickly about it because this was a, a friend of mine a few years ago who I visited and he showed me this, uh, he called it a singing plant. And when I first heard this term, a singing plant, I didn't quite know what, uh, <laughs> what he was talking about. He's a pretty out there guy. 
and he showed it to me and he explained and what happens is that scientists have found that you can attach electrodes to different plant parts of the plant any plant really and certain plants have a better uh, surface more moist and they can actually uh, conduct electricity better so they're more suited but you connect these electrodes to different parts of the plant and there's a potential difference in the electricity between uh, these two parts and over time in the beginning the plant doesn't know how to do this but over time the plant learns you can train the plant to recognize um, and what happens is you take that potential difference and you connect it to a speaker and so whenever there's a certain difference in that change in that potential you get a certain note that gets played uh, in relation to what that change in potential is excuse me and over time what happens is that this plant learns to recognize uh, whatever it is whether these sounds or these waves and to um, use it as an expression and so if you have different people come and stand next to the plants the plants will emit different frequencies and different sounds that are translated by this machine and if you you know talk to the plant and say different things or if you sing to it the different ways that you behave with a plant you can actually see it responding to your behavior and changing its behavior accordingly so it's it's very very weird to, to witness and see for the first time but uh, I mean this is this is becoming more and more accepted in scientific communities today and I think it's important to remember because as some of you may or may not know in the eco village obviously a, a very important tenant is this respect to nature and the understanding that nature isn't just uh, you know our environment or our surroundings or our sort of you know lessers but really equals and partners in this journey and in the same way that humans are trying to live a certain way trees are communicating with each other and trying to live a certain way and the most successful systems seems to me uh, to be the ones that are harmonious that manage to find an advantage to all of the parties that are involved and to manage to live by supplying and giving and taking exactly what different parts need in the same way that the forests do this and in the same way that we hope to do with the food forests so uh, I dare not go there but if we could learn a little something about you know how do we get out of a situation where things seem to be split there seem to be different parts that aren't functioning together um, it's always best whenever possible to find a solution that benefits everyone that allows everyone to work together towards a common goal so let's move on from there and I think that I mean there's been a lot of talk on the chat etc about steamit and also about coronavirus and I've mentioned a little bit in the last episode so forgive me uh, for not addressing it more in length but unfortunately that really isn't my uh, forte and it's not what I, uh, I think I'm here to do so I would like to move on now to the next part of this uh, episode which is talking about um, a new concept basically now last week I spoke a little bit about permaculture and as some of you may know permaculture 
is actually uh, the combination of the two words, permanent agriculture. And that movement or that, you know, whatever is coined that phrase uh, seems to represent this forward thinking of agriculture that will withstand the test of time, meaning an agriculture that will become uh, stronger and more, you know, uh, sustainable um, as it grows more robust and as it develops and becomes more stable. And so that's one sort of side of looking at it. And there seems to be, I'm not sure if I'd say a competing theory, but nonetheless, there seemed to be another theory that there's a lot of overlap, as there is uh, a lot of the time with these things. Um, but there seems to be another theory that is equally important in my mind to learn from and to see how we can best use these to benefit our goals. And that is a system that's called uh, regenerative, regenerative agroforestry. And so the regenerative movement in general, there's actually a website called regrarians.org. And uh, this whole philosophy is centered around this world regenerative, to be able to grow crops and do the work and graze in a way that allows the land to both heal and to heal more strongly. Now, um, Okay, I can see there's a, a bit of talk in chat <laughs> about mushrooms and this is something I feel quite strongly about. So just because this might have been sparked slightly by my uh, show, I want to just mention something, mention something very, very quickly. If you are new to mushroom hunting and if you're not entirely sure what you're doing or you think you recognize it, uh, mushrooms can be very, very dangerous. It, it might be one of the most, I mean, some of them, most poisonous uh, species in terms of the amount that you have to ingest and how quickly uh, you can die and there's no antidote that's known today. So if you're eating, you know, very, very poisonous, poisonous mushrooms and there are some of them, uh, it can be very, very dangerous and a lot of people every year do die from ingesting the wrong mushrooms. And in fact, um, there seems to have been a lot of cases, I just mentioned this because this happens in Portugal as well, uh, a with locals who think they recognize a mushroom or you know whether they don't know it enough or I don't know what there are often poisonous mushrooms that look very very similar to edible mushrooms and many times local people here people who grew up in these areas actually eat the wrong ones and end up dying so it's a very serious deal um, there's obviously ways to do it safely and if you want to learn how to identify mushrooms I would suggest consulting someone who is obviously experienced and knows what they're doing and if you learn how to do it and you do it with them a few times then there's really no problem you can easily tell what the interesting signs are what the crucial signs are to tell the good ones from the bad ones but it is very important to remember that mushroom knowledge is very very local so if you go somewhere and you learn about the mushrooms in that place, do not necessarily uh, pass on that knowledge to the next place because there might very well be some different species that looks very much like the one that you know is fine, but actually in this area it's poisonous one. These things have happened. There have been many stories in the US of immigrants, um, I think some Asian immigrants, who are obviously very into mushrooms and a very uh, experienced mushroom culture, 
and they saw these mushrooms and recognized them as being the mushrooms that they ate back home and so they brought them back and ate them and they ended up being a different uh, species and this this happens uh, really more than it should considering like how poisonous mushrooms are so I make it a very big point whenever I can to remind people please don't just go and uh, try mushrooms that you find even if you think they might look unless you actually know what you're doing and you have experience uh, don't mess with it I even see like I'm you know part of uh, on Facebook there's a few groups of like mushroom identification and honestly sometimes people just take a picture on a phone and say like hey can I eat this mushroom does it look good and it's like, uh, you know, that's, that's not the way to do it. In my mind, at least, I, uh, I would <laughs> strongly advise against it. So that's just my two cents about it. I know that a lot of people uh, feel slightly differently. Like I've met people here and obviously people who have had experience with mushrooms, not experts, experts, but people who have picked them down. And they seem very gung-ho about, yeah, you can just try it and take a little bit and nibble. Uh, I don't know, not for me. <laughs> if you're not sure and you have any doubts, please uh, consult with someone who will, will know for sure. Um, but yes, as, as Kyle says in the chat, there are lots of different kinds of mushrooms. And Paul Stamets said, which is uh, interesting to note, that all edible mushrooms are actually medicinal mushrooms. And so we have this sort of list of what the medicinal mushrooms are and then the other mushrooms aren't medicinal. Um, in fact, it was very interesting. Uh, Paul Stamets was on the Joe Rogan podcast, I think uh, probably a year or two or so um, before, something like that. And if you haven't seen it and you like Paul Stamets, I highly recommend going to watch it. It was a great episode and uh, he was talking about a lot of new work that he's doing now as well. But in an older episode, um, going back a few years, he was talking about these different mushrooms and the fact that all uh, edible mushrooms have certain medicinal properties. And some of them we haven't discovered yet, obviously, but the numbers and the research that he's been doing about really curing diseases and treating symptoms and some very, very amazing things, using mushrooms not only for humans as medicine, but also for different organisms in nature and for those who don't know, he has a very big study that he's been doing for a while now about the relationship between bees and mycelium and uh, bees being attracted to a certain mycelium that seems to be helping them to heal their immune system, to strengthen it and to heal uh, bee communities. So it seems from his research that bees uh, develop this kind of symbiotic relationship with uh, mushrooms and that they would actually go and yeah, eat these different parts of the mycelium and that's how they would help their immune system. And in fact, I mean, I won't go into the whole story because it's a fascinating, very long uh, story of how he came about this. It took him years and years to sort of piece all of the different parts together. But from what he has researched and found, there seems to be a correlation between these bees and mycelium and between bears. And so we know that iconic uh, picture of bears slashing uh, trees. And as we all know, some bears, some species, but bears enjoy eating honey. I have to say, I don't remember all of the uh, 
the specific details of which species of mushroom and honey uh, bees and bear, but we'll talk about it generally. You can look up the details later. Um, and so the bears that slash the trees are actually cutting open a place for a certain uh, wood-eating mushroom uh, to grow there. And that fungus that grows there then attracts bees that come and eat from the mycelium to help it boost its immune system. And those bees make honey nearby. And so the bear can come and eat that honey. And his research has shown the bears will come and sort of slash that uh, uh, tree. And I think it's part of also their, when they shed their fur and they're scratching a, 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 uh, up against the bark, they will slash you know, parts of it. And then they will come back to that tree sort of a year later, and very often there'll be a mushroom that has grown there. So there seems to be this interesting symbiotic relationship between these uh, three species, and Paul Stamets talks about the cultural references that lead to this and all we've done. But anyway, it's very, very interesting. If you haven't heard, go uh, check it out. But yeah, fungi are an amazing organism that really hold a lot of the solutions uh, to, to a lot of our problems. In fact, uh, I'll just mention one more thing that was talking about. Um, for, those, for those who know or don't, I haven't actually mentioned it, but right now um, we are uh, in the presence. We're being visited by Eco Alex and two of his friends who have come from England um, as part of the Eco Village uh, meeting. And this is the first time that we're actually together, not only in the same uh, country, but even in the same uh, house. So uh, it's very, very exciting, and I have to say things are going well so far. But uh, that's pertaining specifically to the eco-village. So if you're interested, we're going to be hosting, I'm sure Alex will, and I'm going to try and write up something uh, in the next few days. So look forward to that. But Alex and I have been talking uh, today about all these things. And one of the things he mentioned was, say, with the Earthship, I think actually it wasn't Alex, it was his friend John who mentioned it, but um, for those who don't know, and I'll be speaking about this more next week in the episode about uh, Earthships, but for those who don't know, an Earthship is a very, very advanced uh, natural building uh, structure. Um, I won't go into any more details, but one of the things that it uses is tires. It basically... Uh, upcycles tires, reused um, used tires that will basically just go into a landfill somewhere and sit and rot in there. And so it takes these tires, packs them with earth and uh, buries them uh, in the ground so that it will use that as a building block. And so this is an amazing solution to many, many different problems and building uh, tires as a building material have many benefits. But there is another part that has to be addressed, which is that these tires, sorry, that these tires will still, to a certain degree, leach out some of those materials, petroleum-based uh, chemicals. Um, and however little that is, there is the question of what can we do to alleviate or to help that to begin with. And so once again, we see that uh, a very simple solution, this was actually uh, offered by an anesthemian, so this is third party, but it's a great idea. What if you were to bury or to colonize uh, this species of uh, mushroom, the oyster mushroom or some petroleum ingesting species, 
around the Earthship base, around where the tires are buried. And so the mushrooms obviously can subsist on many different things. They don't have to have just the petroleum. But if there's a colony that's living there and if they have nutrients available in the area, then over time when the chemicals start leaching out, when the tires start degrading, however slowly, the mushroom canvas, the mycelial network, will already be there to absorb any of the poisons that could be leaching out and prevent it from going onto the earth, but actually transform it into uh, innocuous uh, chemicals and nutrients that the environment can actually use. So when I heard that, I thought that's a very good idea of how to use sort of these different things to really perfect the ideas as much as we can. So that was just a little bit about mushrooms. Sorry, I went off track there. Just had to mention a few things about the dangers of just picking wild mushrooms without being 100% sure. And uh, I can talk about mushrooms for hours. Thank you so much to, uh, I can't quite pronounce that name, but whoever uploaded the uh, Joe Rogan podcast. Okay, so I was just getting into regenerative agroforestry and this other movement that I'm not going to say, you know, it's not exactly counter movements or any kind of, you know, disagreement between them. It's just, I think, more than anything, different brandings and different companies that are taking this. Gecko, thank you, Kyle. I was not sure how to pronounce that gecko. Uh, I'll remember. Ah, is there a picture of a gecko? No. Okay, so I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I didn't get that. Um, so on the one side, we have the permaculturalists, which were obviously come from Bill Mollison and from David Holmgren. And on the other side, we have this sort of yeoman, uh, you know, tribe, as it were. And so I've mentioned PA Yeomans a few times before and the key line farming. And that will be in the future episodes when I actually talk about key lines specifically more in depth. But um, the whole key line tribe came from, you know, PA Yeomans who first developed this whole uh, concept of how to manage water on land and how to manage it with grazing and how to do all of this to increase the fertility of the land. And so if we look at permaculture and we look at the differences or the comparisons between the two, it's not that they disagree. I think more maybe they have sort of different focuses. And even with that name, you can see permanent agriculture and regenerative agroforestry are two similar concepts that really put the focus on different parts, whether it's the regeneration or the permanence. And so within the regenerative uh, plan, there's nowadays um, P.A. Yeoman's son, who is now, I think, older, and he's, he's still actually working in the company, and uh, another gentleman who's joined him, uh, they are actually together running this sort of, they have this company called uh, Regrarians and they're working on this handbook. And uh, in it, they've actually taken the um, seven, uh, sorry, the, the line, um, the key line permanent scale. Sorry, I forgot that for a moment. And they've actually added to it for, you know, different additions for modern times. So if you're interested in hearing more about that, I would strongly suggest that you go to their website and check it out. They've got some very interesting things that they do there. But I think in sort of 
comparison or along with permaculture, which we spoke about last week and its principles, the regenerative agriculture seems to be really focused on trees and the forests and the water management. And the reason for this, in my mind at least, is that there have been some very, very interesting projects that have been done with sort of no work put into it. And what I mean by that is that there have been a few experiments where people have bought a piece of land and then instead of starting to change it or till or do all of these things, plant new species, they simply didn't do anything and they let it sit. And there is uh, one documentary which came out, I think a couple of years ago on YouTube, um, very well done about a piece of land in New Zealand. There was a big stretch, it was a few hundred hectares going from the mountains all the way into the sea and taking this whole sort of valley that was going down there. And uh, in the beginning when this person bought the piece of land, all of the farmers around were, were very worried. There's this uh, very common spiky weed that grows uncontrollably in the area. And this weed sort of is the, 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 you know, the problem of all of the farmers and they do whatever they can to get rid of it. And here comes this madman, this hippie, this person who buys this plot and uh, just lets everything grow. And obviously this weed starts taking over. And the farmers come and tell him he has to get rid of it. I think it's called gauze in the, they called it there. You have to get rid of the gauze, it's going to be terrible, it's going to spread to our farms, and he wouldn't do it, wouldn't listen. And so over time, um, I think a few years later, they actually had a fire in the area, a pretty big fire, and it reached um, most of the land that he'd had there. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm still getting off uh, over a little bit of cold. So... This fire came and burned so much of the land. He was so you know, upset, obviously. But looking through the landscape, he saw that all of that gauze that was growing there was suddenly gone. And he'd noticed that underneath, in all of these area where, areas where the gauze was growing, suddenly these new shrubs were growing and these new trees started to sprout. And he realized this cycle was actually part of the natural cycle where the gauze sort of comes to the earth to aerate it, to prepare it for the plants that are coming. The gauze is actually a, a pioneer species. And so after the gauze came, this natural fire came, which took away all of this weed that was preventing anything else from growing and opened up the space in one fell swoop for other species to start growing in its place. And all of these natural trees and natural species that really weren't seen in the area for a long time suddenly came back without this person having to grow anything. And this was obviously really mind-blowing. And with time over decades, this was I think 40 years ago now, um, more and more water was held by the land and the earth became richer and this water would eventually burst out in streams in certain areas and in, you know, pool in certain uh, parts of the forest and these natural reservoirs were just popping up by themselves without having to dig anything, just as they do in nature, just like springs just appear, uh, spring out of nowhere. 
And so this whole system that was happening, that was really looks like paradise and utopia, was actually happening with, with no work put into it at all. And that was a very interesting story for me because until that story I'd known that that's what happened. I'd obviously read about it and realized the research, but I'd never actually seen the results themselves. It was a very, very interesting moment for me and a, a very affirming moment. And so I think I've got now, okay, we've got about 15 minutes. So if anyone has any questions about anything that I've gone over that you want me to, I don't know, reiterate or explain, please let me know. But if we have a few more minutes, then since this episode is about food forests, I'd like to just mention a few things that I'm sure the PDF that was posted um, talks about. But I mentioned this concept of pioneers, and I think it's a good concept because whenever you establish a food forest, the way you do it, or the best way I think that's possible to do it, is to establish it with these um, over time, as it were. And so if you're planting your species, this is actually a lot of what Jeff Lawton talks about. When you're planting your species, you can plant them seeing uh, as they will grow into the future. And what I mean by that is there are different types of plants and there is a natural progression that goes when a forest is established, any kind of forest. And so the first species that come uh, are the species that prepare the land. So the land might be really blocked or it might be very dry or it will be in some way inaccessible to different species. And so these first species that come are really called the pioneer species. They're the ones that are responsible with terraforming, with changing the environment, with their very strong roots um, aerating the earth so that the water can penetrate deeper and eventually dying, uh, not eventually, dying off pretty quickly and having their biomass return to the earth as nutrients for the following species. So the pioneer species are the ones that are there first to make things more habitable. And then the preceding species are basically going to be in different levels of height. And so you want to have a certain ground cover that will protect both the earth and the species that are growing underneath. And you're going to have trees that are very, very small and very, very vulnerable in the beginning. And so you don't want them to have to battle with big shrubs as they're trying to make space. And so what you do is you sort of grow everything in the area from a small height building upwards. And as time goes on, you sort of start thinning out and chopping and laying more and more biomass of what was planted in order to allow the actual fruit trees that you want to plant to have room and nutrients that they need. And so the ratio that Jeff Lawton talks about is in the beginning, 90% of the species that are planted need to be what's known as supporting species, which is usually leguminous species, species that are very good with bringing nitrogen from the air and putting it in the ground, and species that will be creating a lot of biomass that you can then have, uh, you can chop and drop and bring back. And so that ratio begins at 90% leguminous supporting species and only 10%, you know, crop or fruit trees or whatever the trees that you want. 
as time goes forward and the numbers that he gives is around 10 years to establish a food forest, obviously this can change and depending on where, what, how you do, but at the end of 10 years, that ratio should have flipped. And so now 90% of the trees are fruit trees and only 10% of the species are supporting species. And so this is how you establish a food forest that gets stronger over time, that all of the fruit trees are able to grow themselves and to support themselves to a state where you're growing enough food and enough crops for you to support yourself and whoever else is uh, necessary. So that's in terms of the trees. Now it's important to remember that as this happens and add the food, as the food forest is established, it's also established in terms of height. And so you want to constantly layer your food forest so that you can have different plants and different crops growing at all the different levels. So you have, as we mentioned, the grass cover. And this can be different grasses or even nitrogen fixes that are crawling on the ground. Um, there are lots of edible species as well for this. Then you have the sort of lower shrubs, lower um, smaller plants that are growing, going up to larger hedges that can be grown even as uh, you know fences or windbreaks for certain areas. And then you've got the vines or the climbing uh, plants that can actually grow vertically. And so the best or design or what we want to do is we want to design a system where the food forest is actually both layered in height, where you have all of these different species interconnected and working with each other. Not that they're blocking each other's shade or blocking each other in the shade, but they're actually enhancing each other. And over time, that as this food forest develops, it actually creates more and more of an abundance and requires less and less work and maintenance in order to upkeep it. Gosh, I do apologize. I should have had a, a quick drink before I started. So that's a little bit about um, establishing a food forest. Um, yeah, I can see we're still on uh, fungi in chat. Yeah, we can uh, we can talk about fungi for a long, long time. I can see, yes, uh, I'm just going through the chat now to see if there's uh, anything that I've uh, missed. But, ah, wonderful. I can see that earlier, I'm so sorry, I didn't even see, Mariano posted a few pictures about uh, showing different food forest uh, structures. And so, yeah, we can see the different layers. Oh, this is exactly, <laughs> thank you so much, exactly what I was uh, trying to talk about. And indeed, in this second picture, we can see that the layers carry on underground as well. So really and truly, when you're studying the whole system of a forest or of any kind of forest, um, as it states here, thank you so much for sharing this, Mariano. Um, when you look at the root system, for example, the root system that goes into the ground has different um, rhizomes that grow on its roots, different mycelial uh, organisms that actually trade off nutrients from one to the other. And these mushrooms actually get their nutrients from the environment and there are lots and lots of different organisms. And as you go down lower levels, you actually get organisms all the way breaking down the minerals from the rocks 
And so, you know, the uh, different minerals that eventually are being used by the plants and they get into our bodies are actually coming all the way from underground and going through all of these cycles of the organisms that are, you know, processing these and making them into smaller and smaller pieces, as it were, more and more uh, possible for the other organisms to digest, to use. And they sort of upcycle these from the bottom through the root layers, you know, all the way up to the plant layers. And if we eat them eventually, all the way to us. So it's a, it's a very, very, um, it's multi-layered, complex, interconnected system with, I don't know, thousands, maybe millions of organisms all sort of working together, do, doing their little part and helping to, uh, to, to keep the forest basically alive. It's those workers and those organisms that we're trying to utilize very uh, selfishly uh, <clears throat> to do the work that we need instead of us, basically. So that's a little bit about uh, food forests. I hope uh, you guys learned a few things uh, or that it was at least interesting, even if you didn't. Um, yes, next week, as I said, I'm talking... Right now, I'm going through the five methods of uh, the eco-village. Five methods, I'll just recap them quickly, are permaculture, which was last week, the three different principles. This week was the food forest. Next week, I'm going to be talking about the earthship. And uh, in fact, uh, if anyone in chat has anything about the earthship, if you've got any questions or something you'd like me to talk about or some part of it that you're more interested in, um, please let me know in the chat. You can ask anything, and I've actually got uh, two Earthship experts here with me for the next few days. So it'd be nice to uh, use that. Maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll manage to coax Alex into coming onto the show and talking a little bit about Earthships next week. We'll see. But um, if you've got anything that you want to know, that you want to ask, now would be a good uh, opportunity for me to uh, to hear yeah what you think about it. But that's going to be next week. And the week after that is going to be, as long as there's nothing too big on Steam that happens, uh, natural farming. And uh, the week after him... Ah, Keyline, of course. So those are going to be the next few episodes as this sort of uh, five methodologies that I'm going through. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you join me uh, for the next episodes as uh, we continue this discussion. Uh, ah, yes, Rondon, absolutely. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to. I was, I was actually going to have him to talk about more about the uh, Eco uh, Village token and all the crypto element that will be part of the Eco Village model. Um, but we're still sort of ironing out, or he is, I should say, um, the exact details and the ins and outs of uh, of how that works. So uh, we feel it's not yet time to uh, to address it publicly. But as soon as it's more um, clear what exactly we're doing, I promise we will share it. Believe me, I am looking forward to it um, as much as you. And but yes, regardless of that, I would really like to have him on the show. And, uh, you know, it's nice that uh, we can do this at any point, even when he goes back to India. So I'm going to keep heckling him and see uh, how long it takes to, to get him uh, to come. But you can send him a message as well, Rondon, and see, uh, see if you can convince him. You know, it'd be good for your ratings, definitely. 
having Nico Alex on the show. Um, but anyway, yes, we'll see how that works out. Right now, I think, uh, is uh, what's the next show? Is it Crimson? I always forget. I'm terrible at this. I should really have the schedule open. But I will mention, for those who haven't seen, uh, if you haven't checked out the new MSP Waves website, they've really done an amazing job. I mean, uh, I just went through it the other day, and it, it looks really cool. I mean, I like the new layout. And so if you're ever wondering what the next show is on or, or what's it about, you can always go there and check it out. Um, and yeah, the new layout is really comfortable as well. So blah, 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 blah. let me have a look and see. Hang on. I'm just going on now to check the schedule. Uh, of course it works, yes. So if I'm not mistaken, afterwards we're going to... Who is the next show after me? Ah, of course, it's on Friday morning, yes. So from 1 a.m. until 4 a.m. Is there a show this week, Rondon? It's uh, normally Full Force Radio, Crimson Clad, which is music, talk, metal, and rock. Uh, in three hours. It's actually a really fun show. I've heard it only a few times because it's a bit late uh, where I am. But if you haven't heard before, uh, go check it out. It's really good. And if you're into metal, it's really uh, the, best, the best source that I've heard in a long time. That's for sure. Um, great. So, let me see Rondon. No, he hasn't said. Oh, Crimson, you're here. Oh, I'm sorry. I would have been <laughs> I didn't realize you were listening. No, for sure. You really, I, I love listening to your voice whenever I uh, catch it. It's unfortunately uh, not often, but it's always a great pick-me-up. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm learning a lot from you, you know, about, the, uh, about how to do this whole talk show and everything. Yes, as Rondon said indeed. So that's in a couple of hours. I'm afraid uh, the shows aren't quite as close together as we would have liked them. We'll see. Maybe, if, uh, maybe we'll see about moving... I'll see, because for me here, it gets to be quite late. It's actually, we're on UTC, as it were. So 10 o'clock here is when we start. So by 1 a.m., I'm already pretty close. As some of you know, I, uh, we have a one-year-old at home. So sleeping time is a very important uh, <laughs> time. Um, oh, you've been here the whole time, Chris, and thank you so much. I'm sorry, I don't actually check the, the chat before I start always. I should get into the habit of doing that. Oh my gosh, there's a lot of people here. Wow. Thank you all for joining Pence if I didn't see you, Carl. A lot of these I don't even uh, recognize. So uh, I hope you uh, enjoyed the show, guys. And if you have any comments, any questions, anything you'd like to add, um, the beauty of this format is that you can always post. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm, uh, ah, if you want to catch up on the previous episodes, I upload them to Steemit. I upload one video version to 3Speak, and last week, uh, last week I think I didn't actually upload an audio version because D-Sound was giving me some problems, so this week I hope I will be able to do a better job. So you can check it out on Steemit. My handle is Olive. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you very, very much for joining. And uh, see you all next week. Bye.